are the sons of God and we're awaiting our adoption. You know, we are saved and we're awaiting our salvation. And there's this groaning that takes place because we haven't yet seen it in fullness, but we are living in its reality today. And he sees this, I think, as a fundamental reason that Jew and Gentile are able to unite together because we're all, the, the, the playing field is level now. We're all part of the new humanity in God. And that can join us together in a way that was not made possible to us in other times. Merry Christmas and welcome to Ideology. This is releasing the day after Christmas, so hopefully you and yours had a great celebration together of the birth of Jesus in our very Americanized version of the Advent season and gift giving, yet such a celebratory time and so much nostalgia around Christmas. I hope it's been a fantastic uh, holiday for you and your family. And in light of the fact that it is Christmas season, it's amazing how quickly it fades after Christmas heading into the new year. Yet we wanted to pause and reflect today on the miracle of the incarnation from a little bit of a different angle, talking about Jesus as the new humanity. The fact that Jesus's birth heralds a new age for humanity. So Drew, why don't you take it away? Thanks, Mick. And yeah, Merry Christmas to everyone out there. If you are one of those people who's a stickler for the church calendar, you you get to celebrate Christmas now on the 12 days of Christmas. And so this podcast is releasing at right the right time. And we do want to look at um, the reality that Jesus is the new humanity. And as a brief reminder, for a lot of church history, the attention placed on the incarnation, it was equal to that of the intention placed on maybe the cross and the resurrection, at least insofar as it's talking about our salvation. Now, my perspective is I think we need to look at all of it as a united whole, and each part is fundamentally important. So it's not to elevate one over and against the other as much as it is to say, I hear far fewer Christians in in the modern world talking about the incarnation. We tend to gravitate towards Easter instead, and we should absolutely celebrate Easter and every aspect of it and the atoning work of Christ. But I, I think by maybe reducing Christmas to a sentimental holiday and not also thinking through the reality of what God has done, um, we miss other elements of what we believe. And the more I meditate on these, I just find such a deeper understanding of who God is and what he has done. The big idea here is that Jesus opens up a new way of what it means to be human. And I think this is a, a really powerful concept. So if you can maybe say that in Adam, there was a certain way of what it meant to be human. And what it meant is a really good thing, you know, in, in so many ways. I mean, blessed by God, given an, an incredible vocation and, you know, on down the line. But also what it meant is to live in a life that is marred by sin. And I, I think, you know, as we talk about a new way of being human, there is certainly continuity. And so I don't want to be too radical in the discontinuity. I think there's elements of Adam's calling that continue even for those who are in Christ. But there is a way of what it means to be human that was accessible for those who are in Adam. And due to sin, there are inherent limitations and even futility that are a part of that way of being human. And so I can maybe contrast um, even in looking at the story of Israel, and we can look at both the discontinuity and the continuity from what we have in Christ. So on the one hand, I think it's important to recognize that Israel was elected by the grace of God. And I'm using language of election here, and I know if you've studied Calvinism, that comes up a lot. I would argue that biblically election is corporate language 
more than it is individual language. And so it's referring to God's choosing a people, and specifically the people of Israel, but later the church. He's setting them apart from the surrounding nations. But it's not because of anything they did positively. And so it's not, you know, I don't think you could say the argument that Abraham's family was inherently way more righteous than all the other families, and so God chose them. To me, in the reading of the Abraham story, or at that time the Abram story, it's an act of grace. It's an act of God graciously choosing people who didn't deserve it because God was committed to them. Then Israel's response to that grace was to respond with faith, and in particular Abraham, and that's what Paul notes. You know, he was the father of faith because when God chose him, when God called him through his grace, Abraham responded back to God through an act of faith. And it was then in that context of God's grace, Abraham's faith, that God worked a mighty deliverance, that he saved Israel using salvation language, and then set them apart as a people. And that is where we get the law. But really what the law was intended was not as a means of salvation, but actually as a response to God's grace to Israel. This was the way that Israel remained set apart. And ultimately what I believe is happening here is that God worked a real salvation among his people, but they were looking to the future by faith to experience the fullness of that salvation. And as just a brief aside, we're in the same way that the salvation story of God has unfolded much further for us who are in Christ, but we too look to the future to await the finality and the fullness of what that would come. And so there's this unfolding of God's salvation story in history that's occurring. And if you were to analyze the history of Israel, what was missing through all of that is the two great enemies of mankind are sin and death. And those two great enemies remained powerful, alive, and active in the world, even though God chose Israel. So he chose them, he set them apart, he saved them from the the surrounding nations, and then he promised a future coming salvation. But these great enemies that marked the line of Adam, sin and death, are the things that remained in humanity. And so if you are in Adam, there was no escaping the fact that sin and death are always going to mark your story. So then it's in the background of that that we look at the life of Jesus. And this is what's so cool to me, where God shows up in the world and part of why he showed up was an atoning sacrifice for sin. And so that's anticipating him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And I I think we have to bear in mind and have a high vision of the atoning work of Christ. However, what Jesus is also doing, and I, I don't think these are two separate things, I think it's a united whole, is he is introducing a new humanity in the world. And so now I get to be a part of a different person, a different system, where my life is no longer marked by Adam, but now I fundamentally am in Christ. And you see it, I I think, most represented in the way that Jesus actually lived. And so when Jesus is tempted 40 days and 40 nights, that is a clear metaphor to me of Israel spending 40 years wandering in the desert, also being tempted. But where Israel turned and sinned and would not trust God, Jesus did the opposite of he trusted God. And I think one of the most underrated, pivotal stories of Scripture is Jesus' triumph over temptation while he is in the desert. Then his life goes on. You know, throughout his, his life, there is this pressure that Israel faced where they were surrounded by forces more powerful than them, and they were constantly facing pressure to compromise, to back down, or to ally themselves to the systems of the world. And repeatedly, that's what happened. That's what people who are in Adam do. But Jesus, by contrast, instead of doing those things, what he did is he remained faithful to the bitter end, 
where he refused to back down. He refused to turn to the systems of the world. He refused to engage in subtle compromise, but instead stood with God, followed God all the way up into the point in which he lost his life, where humanity had, you know, and I've talked about this recently, where the, the curse of sin is that we would work the ground and the ground would produce thorns. Jesus took the crown of thorns upon his own head. And, you know, he, he worked, so to speak, and his work involved the pain of the thorns, but he took it upon himself. And ultimately, he had to walk through the entire journey of what it meant to be human, facing our temptation, facing our pressure, facing the pain of our toil, and ultimately facing and enduring death itself. And he did all of it, every facet of what it meant to be human. In the original call of God, marred for those who are in Adam, Jesus lived back through all of those things. And there's this ancient saying that what he has not assumed, he cannot save. And what they mean is that Jesus took on every facet of our humanity and he redeemed every facet of our humanity so that we can be saved completely. And he then introduces us into a new way of being human. So now I can live no longer in Adam, but I'm actually able to live in the lineage of Christ who has conquered all of the elements that were there within Adam. Yeah, and so I think, you know, as we talk about Jesus being a new humanity, and, and Drew, if I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're not necessarily talking about a completely new breed of humanity. You're talking about a restoration of humanity back to the original design, the original intent. Or are you insinuating that that Jesus instituted a new version of humanity that superseded even Adam and Eve pre-fall? as if there was some kind of progression of humanity, or is this a recapturing of humanity? Yeah, that's a really fascinating question, actually. I think we need some theologians to weigh in on that, or maybe some patristic scholars to get their take. I, I know there's one of the early Greek Orthodox fathers, um, I think is Maximus, the confessor, he had this theory that the incarnation would have happened even if Adam had never sinned, and this, this idea that God's intention was to dwell with humanity— and so God was always intended to become and be one of us, but eventually it had to become, because of our sin, it turned into a rescue mission. And so there is this culmination of God living with us in fullness. And so that would be his understanding of it. I, I think you could probably articulate different ways of looking at that as well. And some of that's probably in the realm of just pure speculation, and I'm always going to be a little careful when we kind of think of what would have happened uh, you know, if Adam and Eve had remained faithful or... How, how does this all relate? Because I think we are limited to what's been clearly revealed to us. But it is a fascinating concept. And, and I don't know the answer to it. I, I think, though, what is clear to me is that a new humanity is available to us in Christ. You know, maybe even on a personal level, all of us in our own stories, we can ask, like, what if I didn't sin in the way that I did? You know, and um, I know a lot of people where they, they made a mess of their life, but the fact of making their mess of their life has been redeemed. And God actually uses the things that they did. Um, and, and that could be places that they send or places that other people send against them. But God uses those elements of their story to the point where it's almost like what they have now is better than they what they would have had, you know? And it's it's hard to go back and speculate and say, what if, you know, what if I hadn't had all of those things, where would I be today? And I just have no way of knowing the answer to that. But I think what we can say is that in Christ, we are given a new way of being human. And I also, just as we stress the discontinuity that Adam and Christ are different, we also need to stress the continuity, and I think that's you know what's significant in history is there is something fundamentally different for those who are in Christ, but it's also the same story and the same unfolding salvific act of God that we get to be a part of. And so there is this break in continuity, and then there's this progression 
that we're participating in. And so I, I think both of those have to be held together because there is a renewal and a redemption of Adam, so to speak, you know, in this, where what it means to be human is being renewed, even as there's also an unfolding to God's plan and a, and a more radical break that occurs over time. Yeah, and regardless of whether it was a restoration of humanity or some kind of progression of humanity, it is a recapturing of a sinless humanity. And of course, we're not there yet. We're in that now and not yet of the kingdom. You talked about that utter redemption and the the future hope of the restoration of, of earth, the new heavens, the new earth. And I remember reading Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven, which I highly recommend if you've never read it before something of a, it's, it, it doesn't, it's not a page turner, but it's, um, it was a paradigm shifting book for me. And one of the core concepts is, you know, a lot of times we, when we try to conceptualize heaven, it's disembodied. It's, it's not very uh, concrete. It's ethereal. It's hard to wrap our arms around. And he's just making the point that biblically heaven, the biblical concept of the new heavens and the new earth is, is very terrestrial. It's very much things that we would recognize, economy, learning, progress, and discovery, and worship. And he said, essentially, if you can do a thought experiment and think of life as it exists now, but without sin, that's close to conceptualizing heaven. And of course, the manifest presence of God. But I remember that struck me doing that thought experiment. Of, it's hard to conceptualize life without sin because our lives have been characterized by the effects of the fall, the effects of original sin. But it's a worthwhile experiment. What, what would my family, my relationships, workplace, what would politics and economy and care for others look like in a sinless world? And this is the the kind of humanity that Jesus is inviting us into and ushering into the earth. And that's a, a great way of even looking at the life of Jesus is that if you can kind of take history and you have past and future, they overlap in the person of Jesus. And another way of saying that is he is the first of the future that walked upon the earth. And what we see in him is the ultimate reality of what we all will one day be. A fancy big word is proleptic. It's, it's the future, it's the beginning of the future made present, and that is who he is. And this is this interesting tension that we live in, is that we are in Christ, and so we are part of that future, and part of that future is actually being manifested in the present. And I, I think physical healing is a great example of that, is, is we're getting a taste of our heavenly bodies, of the redeemed power of God, reworking and, and renewing and undoing the curse of sin. And at the same time, we know that unless Christ returns, we all will still one day die, but then we'll be resurrected. And so you can almost take, you know, there, there is still this outworking of a world that is governed with sin and death, but Christ has already come. The victory has already, has already occurred and his kingdom is expanding and it's going to culminate where the finality of that will one day take place. But the future is breaking into the present. It's already there. It's already happening. It's not purely a future thing. It is actually a now reality. It's just not a now reality yet in fullness. And whatever horrible thing happens, it's always going to be matched by an even greater reality that ultimately culminates in resurrection. And that's what Christ inaugurated as this new humanity. Now, there's a, a concept in Christian theology called the hypostatic union. This is one of those... Uh, Theological concepts that it's actually really important and was worked out over the course of centuries in the church. Uh, you can go back if you want to study the Council of Chalcedon. I think it was 451, if I get my dates right. 
But it was this question of how can we speak of Jesus being both fully God and fully man, or was he fully God and fully man? And and you know, a lot of the heresies were leaning too far one way or too far the other. Jesus was God but not man, or Jesus was man but not God. And those heresies continue today. They just take new shapes and forms. But in this council, they hammered out this thing called the hypostatic union. And, and what they're affirming is that Jesus is fully God and Jesus is fully man. So another way of saying that is he is one person with two natures. But these natures, it's not like a 50-50 thing or a 75-25. Um, he is fully God and he is fully man. And the hypostatic union is the joining together of those two natures and the one person of Christ. And some of that can get into, you know, even some Greek philosophy or thought or, you know, concepts that different times, you know, were a really big concern for people. Other times we're not as worried about it. What I, what I want to look at here, though, that I think is a really cool concept is what this means for us in our humanity, that God has joined with us, that God became one of us. Because what I believe is happening here is it's paving the way for us to be united with him. Now, to be very clear, we are not God. We will never be God. God is altogether different than us. But the hypostatic union, I think, gives us a mirror of who we are meant to be, which is meant to be united to God. Another way of saying that is our humanity is never fully realized if it's not joined together into the life of God. And so where Jesus is like ontologically, he is God. He is a member of the Trinity, given human flesh, fully God and fully man. We are not that. But what we are is because we are in Christ, invited by the Holy Spirit to be joined into the life of God in communion with him. And I think that's even a significant concept, even as we look at the, the terminology of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. In a way, I think is capturing this as I'm joined back into the life of God, that it's actually in that, that the fullness of my humanity is realized, that I am most human when I am most in communion with God, and that Jesus himself demonstrated what that was meant to be in his own body, but then he made a way for me. It is him, and it's a really cool, interesting theological concept, but it's also a roadmap for me that I am meant to be united in God, and that's where I find my life. Yeah, it's a fascinating study, the hypostatic union, and and reading the five kind of main points that were summarized out of the Council of Chalcedon and the grappling with the incarnation of Jesus as being fully God and fully man and that that seeming paradox. And it's just it's up there with the Trinity, how is God three and yet one? And and I would lump in predestination and free will in, in from my own studies, just how how is God outside of time and knows the beginning from the end and yet the free will of man is preserved in in the midst of God's sovereignty. And here's another seeming mystery, but there are so many implications wrapped up in the full deity of this person, Jesus Christ. And so take us into some of those scriptures that you feel like speak to this reality and maybe help us wrap our arms around this a little bit more. A great study, if you want to explore some of this, is the book of Romans as a whole, because I think this is Paul's argument that he's making here. And, you know, he explicitly talks about Adam and Christ, and he, he kind of goes back and forth between those two about how Jesus has inaugurated a new humanity. Um, he also talks about Abraham and his legacy of faith. So he's drawing on a lot of this. Um, there's there's an interesting scholarly debate about what is the center of Paul's theology. So in other words, like if you had to condense Paul's message, what is it? And I think a lot of people assume it's grace versus law, but I, I don't think that's accurate. I mean, there's whole books of the Bible where he doesn't even get into that. So if you were to take the two letters to the Corinthians, that just doesn't seem to be a major concern, though it is a pretty big concern in Galatians and Romans. And so how do you how do you make sense of all that? The best proposal I've come across in this, and I think I got it from Ben Witherington, 
is that the center of Paul's theology is a narrative. So he sees a story of what God has done in Israel, in Jesus, and now through the church. And so as he's faced with certain problems, he's leaning on this background story to unpack the problem or to deal with the problem. And so that's why it looks different when he's talking to the Corinthians than when he's talking to the Galatians, because the presenting issue was different, and so he's going to address a different thing. But what he's calling them to is he's saying, you guys need to understand what God has done. And I, I think a lot of his chief concern with that is the joining of Jew and Gentile together in one united church. So back to Romans. If I read Romans and I'm, I'm reading what, what Paul is trying to articulate there, I think what it comes down to is that Jesus fundamentally changes things and that Jesus is representative of a new humanity. And what that allows for is people who previously were apart from God. They were not elected. They were not chosen. And they were living in sin without the knowledge of God. And so they were, by very nature, separate from God. At the same time, even those who were chosen by God, that the twin enemies of sin and death ruled over those people. And so even though they were chosen by God and by faith were awaiting their salvation, there was still something fundamental at who they are that prevented them from realizing their calling. And so when Jesus shows up, he deals with the twin enemies of sin and death. And that's, you know, especially you see in Romans chapter 5. But it still leaves open the question, and that's why Romans does not end after five chapters. It still leaves open the question, what does it mean to be the people of God? And that's where he leans heavily on the fact that now we are no longer in Adam, nor are we even in Abraham, but we are now fundamentally in Christ. And we are part of a new humanity, and what it means to be in that new humanity is different. And this is, you know, I think his his argument in Romans really reaches its apex in Romans chapter 8. And that's where he introduces the work of the Holy Spirit. And uh, it's stunning to me how Paul hardly mentions the Spirit up until chapter 8. But then kind of at this concluding point to his argument, he's describing that what Jesus inaugurated in his new humanity is made available to us by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can be the united people of God. And he even captures that eschatological tension that you're mentioning, Mick, that you know, if you read Romans 8, it's we are the sons of God and we're awaiting our adoption. You know, we are saved and we're awaiting our salvation. And there's this groaning that takes place because we haven't yet seen it in fullness, but we are living in its reality today. And he sees this, I think, as a fundamental reason that Jew and Gentile are able to unite together because we're all, the, the, the playing field is level now. We're all part of the new humanity in God. And that can join us together in a way that was not made possible to us in other times. And so, you know, you kind of take this thought, and, and I think if you read Romans in particular, but other New Testament works like Ephesians, you start to see, oh, wow, that there's this really cool truth that affects us in a lot of ways. And like all, you know, kind of out there theological things, um, if we can maybe pull it down just to our own life today, and it's the day after Christmas, you know, what, what do you do with something like that? And I have found I want to live in the reality and what you shared a minute ago, Mick, of my hope, my future, and also my present, that today I am part of that new humanity. And fundamentally, at the core of who I am, at my most real, it's that. It's that I am in Christ, I'm united to Him, and I am part of a humanity in Him. And that's my inheritance, that's my future, that's my hope, and that's who I am today. And there is going to be that tension that I live in the world but because of what Jesus did, he inaugurated a new way of living and a new way of being human. And, 
And yes, there is a future to that that we haven't seen, but it's also a present that we can experience right here and right now. And that gives me a lot of hope. So may these thoughts add some depth and dimension to your Christmas celebrations. Thank you, as always, for tuning in, and we'll catch you next week on Ideology. Um, we miss other elements of, of what we believe that um, the more I meditate on them, I just, that we miss other elements of what we, we miss other, <laughs> that's a good outtake.